Welcome to the Cultivariable Podcast. This is episode number four. I'm Bill Whitson, owner of Cultivariable and your host. This episode is going to be a little bit different and kind of an experiment. This is a Q&A episode. Uh, for the past few weeks, I've been collecting questions from you, which I will answer for the next, uh, hopefully not more than an hour. If you would like to submit a question for a future episode, just send your question to podcast at cultivariable.com, and uh, you can have your question answered in a future episode. Uh, this will be a little bit more informal than normal. I will not be editing this episode because I can't imagine anything more tedious than listening to myself talk. So uh, without further ado, we have uh, 14 questions, and I'm just going to take them in the order submitted. The first question is from David. Why don't you grow sweet potatoes and yams? They seem like a perfect fit with your other offerings. Uh, yeah, I'm really interested in sweet potatoes, actually. Uh, I, I like to eat them, and I would, I would sure like to be able to grow them here. Uh, but one thing that both sweet potatoes and yams have in common is that they're tropical plants. And uh, the climate here is... Uh, is, is in, in terms of, of summer temperatures a pretty pretty cold climate really uh, our our summer highs typically top out at about 70 degrees Fahrenheit or about uh, 20c and, uh, and and that's the max so really um, our summer high temperatures tend to be in the low to mid 60s and our night temperatures are in the 50s, sometimes in the 40s, um, even in the, the hottest month of the year. And tropical plants uh, tend not to do very well under those conditions. So sweet potatoes, I, I've tried to grow sweet potatoes quite a bit, and uh, about the best that I can do, even with the most cold-tolerant varieties, are, are roots that are about the thickness of a pencil. So really not worth growing. Um, I can do a little better if I grow them in a tunnel or a greenhouse, but I try to avoid I try to avoid putting plants on life support unless I have a unless I have a breeding objective. So uh, unfortunately even undercover sweet potatoes uh, have failed to flower here in the past, and without flowering, I can't c collect seed, and without seed, I can't really do any breeding. So it's 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 not it's not a great use of of time. I would be more likely to try sweet potatoes if I could get a large quantity of true seed. But sweet potatoes are one of those crops that, for the most part, don't readily produce seed, and because because performance in this climate is so far off the normal behavior of sweet potatoes, I would probably need a lot of seed in order to, to begin to find uh, varieties that were good candidates for breeding here. So if I could find a place to buy a thousand um, sweet potato true seeds, then, then I might give that a shot. But um, seeds are hard to come by, and certainly in, in those quantities pretty much impossible to come by. So I don't really anticipate working with sweet potatoes in the near future. Yams are um, a much bigger group. 
the uh, it's a it's a large genus of tropical plants that uh, produce tubers, and uh, again the the problem is is mostly temperature. I have experimented a little bit with uh, with a couple of different species, and uh, I have a fair amount of seed of Dioscorea japonica, which is a, a Japanese yam that that grows under temperatures that are a, a, a little bit closer to ours, but I haven't had great success so far. Uh, I may play with those a little more. But in general, these tropical plants are not, are, are, are not probably going to be among our offerings in the near future. Um, in a lot of ways, I, I describe this as a, as a, as a gateway climate um, for plants that reproduce best under really mild weather conditions. So we're really well positioned for dealing with a lot of the other root crops, especially the Andean ones, uh, because the climates turn out to be quite similar. But uh, as you get into um, as you get into tropical crops, we're really you'd probably look at at uh, the southeast United States, you know, you know, kind of a subtropical, verging on continental climate, as a good place to do initial breeding work with those tropical species someone in that area might be able to uh, have a better shot at getting some good adaptation for slightly colder climates where really what i'm doing here is mostly taking plants that expect a cool climate and trying to adapt them for conditions that are either a little warmer in the summer or a little colder in the winter so i hope that answers your question Uh, moving on Anna asks, can you explain what a tetraploid is? That is, I'm not sure that this is the best medium for answering that question, but I'll give it a shot. Um, Organisms can be divided more or less into two groups. uh, Those that are diploid and those that are polyploid. Diploid organisms have two sets of chromosomes. So humans are a good example of that. Uh, we each inherit one set of chromosomes from, from each of our parents. Um, those chromosomes have the same genes, but potentially different alleles. So you get the same gene from your mother, you get the same one from your father, but the values of those genes, the alleles, are often different. And that leads to interactions that produce dominance of one gene where it overrides uh, the other or uh, recessive genes where both have to have the same value in order to be expressed. Um, And this is fairly simple to, it's fairly simple to figure out most of those relationships in a diploid where there are, where it's binary, there are only two options. But in polyploids, you have more than two sets of chromosomes. Uh, the, the next simplest case after a diploid is a tetraploid, which is the case where each parent contributes two copies or two sets of chromosomes. So this is not very common in animals, but it is quite common in plants. And, um, 
it, it's important because it 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 increases the genetic complexity of the organism. With with diploids, um, a lot of a lot of diploid plants are are sexually propagated, so they're propagated from seeds, and the the trick to getting a plant that can reliably grow true from seed is to get as much as possible the genes of importance to be homozygous. So in a homozygous situation, each of the two alleles of a particular gene in that organism are, are the same. Um, and you get there, you get to that homozygosity by breeding and you're selecting over and over to try and reinforce just the phenotype that you want. And over time, you wash out all of the, all of the conflicting alleles until you're left with an organism that has, for all the traits that you care about, only identical alleles. And then at that point, it will grow true from seed. Well, this is a lot more difficult in a polyploid because they have more sets of chromosomes. So instead of just having to breed to get two, two alleles that are the same, in a, in a tetraploid you would have to breed to get to four alleles that are the same. A polyploid has more built-in heterozygosity simply as a function of having more sets of chromosomes. So. Potatoes are a great example of a of a tetraploid organism, and if you've if you've read that term a lot, it's it's quite likely that I that I was talking about potatoes. Um, with potatoes, there are both diploid and tetraploid populations, but the potato of commerce, the potato that most of us are familiar with, that you could buy at the grocery store in North America or Europe or, or most of the world. Is, is a tetraploid. And this has made breeding a greater challenge than it would be um, if we had chosen diploid potatoes instead, simply because we have all that excess heterozygosity built in. And the consequence is that um, we, we propagate potatoes clonally for the most part because it's very, very difficult. It might take, let's say it takes eight years to stabilize a diploid plant so that it be, can be grown true from seed. It, it could easily take, uh, it could easily take double to four times as long to stabilize a tetraploid. And, and in fact, you might you might never get there because the interactions between the chromosomes become much more complex as you add additional sets. So we have the opportunity with a plant like a potato instead sort of um, fix those traits by cloning the plant instead. And tubers are a very convenient way to clonally propagate a plant. Um, but uh, the the consequence is that it is that the process of breeding is becomes much more of a numbers game you can't as easily 
direct breeding to get to the phenotype that you want. So you grow much larger numbers of seedlings, hoping that the, the, the right combinations that you're looking for will show up in small numbers among those very large numbers of seedlings. Um, so it makes the initial steps of breeding much more complicated in a tetraploid. But the, <laughs> I, I may have uh, digressed beyond your interest there, the, to, to sum it up, a, a tetraploid is an organism that has four sets of chromosomes of which in most cases, two were contributed by the mother and two were contributed by the father. Okay, uh, we have two questions from Josh. And the first is, what, how, how would you recommend that someone in high school become a plant breeder? Uh, <laughs> I, I might be the worst person to ask, actually. Um, yeah, so I, I, I can give you potentially some advice, but I do not have a degree, well, at all, and certainly not in plant breeding. Um, and uh, plant breeding is a, a second career for me, and one in which I am... Uh, I can't think of a better term than than uh than self-educated although of course that's not really true i've i've been educated by many of the same i suppose people who 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 you would learn from if you took a college course because i've read many of the same books so um but i've i but i've had no formal schooling in plant breeding so i so i can't really tell you how to do it the right way, if, if there is a right way. Um, and I'm not even honestly sure, I, I don't really know the numbers on, on plant breeders. Uh, certainly we see, I, I think we see the most obvious output from academic plant breeders, and they are, by and large, PhDs. So um, there's certainly nothing wrong with going the traditional route and going to college and getting a, getting probably a biology degree and then, um, you know, working toward a, um, toward a PhD in, in, uh, in, in plant breeding or a closely related discipline. Um, but of course that's certainly not the only option. Uh, there are obviously many people who work in plant breeding who are not scientists um, an undergraduate degree in, in horticulture or, or biology or, or another such closely re, uh, related discipline would serve you to, probably more than serve you, to uh, do plant breeding in a nursery or, or on your own. And, and, and frankly, you might not need a degree at all. I don't have one. Um, most of the farmers throughout history who did the bulk of the plant breeding that brought us um, to the state of things prior to, I don't know, more than about 150 years ago, certainly didn't have PhDs or, in general, any education. 
Um, so, so there are a lot of possible ways to approach this. I, I guess the best piece of advice I could give you is if you want to breed plants, just start. Um, you certainly don't need to wait to get eight years of a degree under your belt to begin breeding plants. Anybody can breed plants because, frankly, the, the plants do most of the work. I, I guess one crucial thing, maybe one of the key tools to, to being a good plant breeder is having, um, is having well-trained observation. A, a, a lot of breeding plants is being able to recognize when something unusual is happening with, with a particular plant. And that is surprisingly difficult to train yourself for. I, I still routinely see things for the first time in plants that I've been working with for years. And, and, and I realize it's been there all along, but I just haven't noticed it before. There was one great example a few years ago where I noticed that some yacon plants were producing um, leaves in a whorl. They were, uh, the, the, the leaves were, were, were triplets when normally the leaves alternate in pairs on a yacon plant. And I thought, wow, what a neat mutation. This is fabulous. I'm going to have to keep a close eye on this plant and, and perhaps even try to propagate it, uh, especially just to see if I can maintain that trait. And shortly thereafter, I noticed another plant that had uh, leaves in three, and then another, and then another. And pretty soon I realized this is actually a, a, a common variation in Yacon. I just hadn't seen it before. I'd probably looked at it many times, but my brain had filtered it out. I hadn't noticed it. It didn't, uh, it didn't, it, 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 it didn't rise to the level of consciousness. And so there are many, many traits in plants that you, that, you, that you just don't notice until you train yourself to. And that is, I think, one of the key, one of, one of the key skills in plant breeding. So to summarize that rambling mess, uh, whichever way, <laughs> whichever course you might uh, decide to take, just start start experimenting now. Start breeding. Start trying. You don't have to be successful. Make crosses. See what happens. Um, plant lots of things and observe them and and try to find um, try to find traits that are unusual. And so much the better if you can find traits that are unusual and then and then figure out how to propagate those traits. Uh, and, and Josh asks a second question: uh, What books would you recommend reading? Uh, I, I don't have a list of, for the most part, of specific books that I would recommend that you read. But I can. Uh, well, I take that back. One great place to start uh, would be with a book like uh, Carol Deppie's "Breed Your Own Vegetable Varieties." It's a great. It's a great overview. It's one of the first books that I read on plant breeding. Um, and I've, I've, uh, 
I've found it extremely useful. Um, it's a, it's, it's really a, a good place to start. Now, once you've moved beyond that, uh, I, I would say maybe one of the first books that you should get is a, it's a book on plant morphology. Um, I've read a few books on plant morphology. They've probably been among the more useful books that I've read, even though they don't deal specifically in plant breeding. Because, again, uh, to, to relate it to the previous question, they help to train you to, to see things in plants that you might not otherwise see. So you almost need to have a vocabulary in your head for the different way that plants form in, in order to see some of those traits at all. Uh, so, that's, so that's a key one. Um, I would also recommend reading a book, any good college-level text, on plant physiology. Uh, physiology is going to come into play endlessly in the formation of different traits and in how plants interact with the environment and, um, and also in how they react to pests and, pests and diseases. So I think there's a, I think there's a great value in, in spending some time there. Um, I don't have specific picks, but I'm, I'm sure if you, if you, uh, look on Amazon or your favorite bookseller for a highly rated, you know, college level text in those subjects, you'll have no problem finding something that will serve you well. So, uh, so good luck, Josh. I'm, I'm assuming that you are a high school student looking to get into plant breeding. That's awesome. Just, uh, just start breeding plants. Uh, okay. Uh, next we have three questions from Joseph. Uh, got some softballs here. That's, that's nice. <laughs> so, uh, uh, what breeding project are you most proud of? Um, well, I'm most, I'm most pleased, I think, with, uh, with my Uyuko breeding. Um, it's, it's my, I think it's the, my favorite among the plants that I grow. So, so that's, that's one reason I like to eat it. Uh, I think it's beautiful. I, I just find it in general a, a fascinating plant. It's also a plant that uh, very few people have had any success breeding. Um, to the best of my knowledge, un until we started doing it here, uh, the, the last time that anyone had had success breeding the plant was in the early 1990s at a, at a university in Finland. And before that, nothing. So it's, uh, there hasn't been much done to, um, to try to introduce new varieties of this plant. And, uh, it, it's a, it, it fits really nicely with my, with my, uh, my goal of kind of being a, a gateway to introduce these um, mild climate, high elevation, um, tropical plants into a wider range in North America. And now I have about a hundred new varieties of a yuko. Um, each one 
I, I don't remember. I calculated at one point how many hours of work went into producing each one of those plants. It, it was a lot. <laughs> it, it's probably, um, it's probably something like, you know, an actual human week of work translates into each one of those varieties because the plant requires, um, hand pollination in order to, to set seeds and, uh, it has a the the it has a very low success rate so it's a lot of work on your hands and knees pollinating teeny tiny flowers to get one seed and then the seeds have uh an extremely low germination rate i think we're up to now about 4% after 4 years from sowing so more or less you you, you sow 100 uyuko seeds and one comes up the first year, one comes up the second year, one comes up the third year, one comes up the fourth year. And uh, I don't know uh, yet what the fifth year and later are going to look like. But uh, it's a lot of work to get each one of those plants. And so there's a certain satisfaction in uh, looking back on things that were difficult to do and, and seeing the, the success involved. So Uyuko is usually at the top of my list of, uh, of, of accomplishments that I'm, that I'm proud of. Um, second question, is there a breeding project that continuously eludes you? Uh, I wish there was only one. Uh, there are a lot of breeding projects that elude me. Um, <laughs> trying to think of what's the best example. Um, it's it's probably fair to say that that I there, that there are more plants that that are currently eluding me that I that I would like to breed or have attempted to breed than there are plants that I'm successful with. It's probably two to one plants that I've failed to make any progress with versus those that I have. Um, but I think a heapa is probably. Um, it's probably the, the, the plant that I would most like to, to breed and I'm constantly frustrated by. Um, Ahipa is one of the least common of the Andean root and tuber crops. It's a, it's a um, storage root forming legume that uh, is native primarily to Bolivia. And it grows at that awkward elevation in the Andes that is uh, kind of, it's kind of a mid-elevation. So it's, uh, it's fairly warm, but, but, the, but the band of temperatures is, is pretty narrow year-round. So it, uh, temperatures tend to be about 75, maybe up to 80 in the summer and uh but dropping down into the into the 50s at night but that doesn't change a whole lot over the course of the year so they don't really have a, a winter the way we do in north america and that sometimes results in plants that have very long growing seasons because they they don't have to wrap it up before cold weather arrives and so a hepa is is difficult because it's we're not quite warm enough uh, to to get it to grow at full speed. Um, 
and it it can take a good seven months to get to uh, to get to flowering, and by then it's starting to get both cold, but particularly here here wet and humid, and uh, it takes the plant a, a a really long time after it's flowered to mature seed pods, a couple months. So, you know, you're talking end-to-end about a period of nine months. And it's very difficult to get to get those mature seed pods because it's probably drier uh, where a heap of grows in the Andes than it is here. And uh, the, the pods tend to rot or just grow so slowly as we get into fall and the temperatures drop that they never really quite get to maturing and so it's uh it's a frustrating plant because many years it looks like i'm gonna have good success with it and then it just doesn't quite get there before before the weather changes it's also um it's also tricky breeding is tricky because it is it's basically a bean and the flowers have to be emasculated otherwise they will self-pollinate and uh so and the 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 rate of success with emasculated flowers is 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 pretty low something like one in 20. so they don't form that many flowers they form the flowers slowly um and they are mostly indeterminate so flowering is continuous and uh, so there's a there's a pretty limited window to get into work on a very small number of flowers with a low success rate <laughs> and uh, and that is uh, that's that can ultimately be be pretty frustrating the, the thing is it's a it's a it's a pretty rare crop there are a couple of of uh, the Andean root and tuber crops that are that uh, I, I hesitate to to say on the verge of extinction, because I, I, I think in the, the modern age, there's enough attention on all of these things that that's unlikely to happen. But these plants, uh, two in particular, Mauka and Ahipa, are, are grown in very small numbers in the Andes. Um, Mauka wasn't known to science really until the 1960s, and it turned up just basically being grown in gardens. It wasn't grown at scale anywhere. Hepa used to be grown at some scale, but it's that it's kind of fallen off a cliff. There, there, there were at one point at least twenty to thirty, maybe more, varieties of this plant. But there's, it appears that they're they're down to really maybe only one variety that's even somewhat common in Bolivia at this point, and the rest are um, are either grown only in gardens or are really just sitting in gene banks at this point. So it would be really great to be able to do some breeding with this plant and hopefully introduce some varieties that are just, you know, a little bit better adapted for this climate that would that would hopefully flower and, and, and wrap up um, setting seed a little sooner. That would make it a lot easier to grow. And if, if, it, if, if it, you know, a heap is close, I mean, I can grow, I can reliably grow a crop of a HEPA, right? What I can't do is breed it easily. So um, it's close 
to being sufficiently adapted to be a good crop for the for the Pacific Northwest. It just needs a little bit of work, but getting getting that last mile is hard. So, a HEPA is pretty much eluding me at this point. Uh, and question number three: What is your current? <laughs> this, uh, so this literally says, "What is your current favoritist breeding project?" I like that. Um, I, I mean, if we're talking long term, I've, I've, uh, it's it's a Yuko, which I've already talked about. Um, but if if we open this up to uh, to what's shiny and new and really exciting me at the moment, then uh, then then Aracacha might be one of my favorites right now. Um, I, I really haven't been able to do much with Aracacha. It is one of the more popular of the Andean root and tuber crops. Uh, it is grown mostly in Colombia, Venezuela, and it has been uh, exported to and is popular in uh, Brazil as well. It's probably native to Ecuador and perhaps Peru. Uh, it, it's it's not very well known though um, in the Andes outside of Colombia and Venezuela. It's uh, it's another one of those awkward mid elevation plants in the in the in the warm zone that has no winter, and uh, it, it's somewhat like a hepa. It it uh, it has a really long growing season, but it but it's way longer than a hepa. So uh, to to grow the crop to maturity uh, takes about thirteen months, and like most of the Andean crops, it's not it's not frost tolerant. So um, there are very very few places in North America where you could hope to grow. Uh, aracacha outdoors without protection it's uh, it's apparently been done in some places in Florida and uh, I'm sure there are some places particularly in coastal California where one could do it um, it's uh, the, unfortunately it, it also like a lot of the Andean crops won't tolerate too much heat particularly particularly for breeding so it has a reputation for aborting all of its flowers uh, when temperatures climb much above the low 80s. So to breed it, you need a temperature that is not too hot, but also it doesn't freeze in the winter. That's tricky. Uh, some years uh, we could do that here. We don't get a hard frost here every year, but we do often enough that it's that the growing aracacha outdoors isn't a isn't a great proposition. Um, the other problem is that it doesn't. This is a plant that doesn't set seed very easily. It's uh, the the in the literature there are some suggestions for ways that you can abuse the plant to the extent that it will uh, go into emergency mode and try to flower. You can you can desiccate. The, uh, the root balls, you can uh, crank up the heat, although you'll have to turn it down again uh, if flowers actually do 
uh, up here. Um, you can let the plant grow for multiple years well past the point where the where the roots are harvestable. Uh, these are all techniques that uh, that have been tried to force the plants to flower and uh, for a small percentage of varieties that appears to work but uh, many of the varieties simply never flower and so we only have two varieties that I'm aware of in the United States and neither one of those uh, appears to flower naturally under our conditions here or uh, even when I torture them so um, so that's basically been a dead end but uh, a couple of months ago some friends managed to produce some aracacha seed and sent me some and that seed has germinated and I've got about 50 seedlings and so that's got me that's got me pretty excited right now uh, the hope of course is that among those seedlings I will find some plants that can flower in this climate and uh, if I do then off to the races I've got a aracacha a breeding, a breeding project um, so it'll probably take a couple of years to know what's going to happen with that. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty thrilled about it at the moment. Okay, uh, so on to Cheryl. Is it really safe to eat Moshwa? I read your how-to page, but I was more confused after I read it. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I probably didn't do you any favors there. So uh, I... I I've uh, I've done my best to cover all sides of uh, of this story with Mashwa, and uh, uh, you know there are only a couple of papers that have studied. Uh, well, let me take a step back for everybody who doesn't know what the hell we're talking about. Um, Mashwa is reputed to have some kind of effect on male virility or fertility, um, a depressing effect. Uh, th the question is whether or not this effect is, is real and whether it occurs in humans. And there's, there's really not a lot of evidence to go on. So we have, you have basically three pieces of evidence. Uh, the first, and I, I think the most tenuous of all, is that there was a comment made by one of the early Spanish explorers in, um, in South America that the, the Incas would send their, their young men off to war with, with Mashua to, uh, I, think, I think the quote is, to make them forget their wives. So uh, people have made a lot of this quote. Um, I... I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know what to make of it. You, there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of possible interpretations of that, right? So setting that aside for, for a moment, there are a couple of studies that have been done with rats where um, they fed the rats a bunch of mashwa and they've, they've found various things. One study found that... Um, that uh, the mashwa reduced the amount of testosterone circulating in the blood in the, in, the, in the male rats. And the other study found that 
uh, found no real decrease in testosterone, but a but a decrease in fertility uh, due to somewhat impaired sperm function. So, uh, so, so one question you might ask is why why did the studies find different things? And neither one of these studies has been replicated. So so I hesitate to you know draw you know to to draw too many conclusions here. But but one one studied uh, rats that were fed basically raw and and freeze-dried mashua and the other one studied mashua that had been cooked and so in the in the cooked mashua I, I, I hope I'm getting this right but as I recall in the cooked mashua they didn't really see a drop in testosterone there might have been some drop in in sperm function um, so there is some effect in rats if you feed rats mashua every day and the effect appears to be reversible if you stop feeding the rats mashua they get better relatively quickly um and the effect is not particularly pronounced these rats didn't become infertile so um i'm not terribly worried about it for for a variety of reasons the the first of which is I just don't think most people are going to be eating that much mashua. There, there are times of the year when we eat a lot of mashua, but it's, but it's seasonal, right? We harvest the mashua, we eat a bunch of it for a month or two, and then really don't eat it the rest of the year. Um, we also don't eat it every day. And, and the more, the, the worse, actually, I'm not sure what the worst problem is, but uh, most men probably don't want reduced testosterone levels. And so if we call that the worst problem, uh, that appeared to happen with raw mashua. And if you've ever tasted raw mashua, you, you, you'll probably understand why nobody is likely to eat a lot of that. Um, raw mashua tastes terrible and uh, is the butt of many jokes. Um, so is it safe? I really can't say. Uh, you know, safety is a, is a relative consideration, and uh, I'm certainly not a toxicologist or anything. I'm just some dope who breeds plants, right? Um, in terms of safety, you know, do you get into your car and commute to a job every day? Um, because if you do, you're putting yourself at a, you know, fairly increased risk of um, being injured or killed. Uh, every day, and to the best of my knowledge, no one has ever been injured or killed by Mashua. So that's that's what I mean by by relative risk. I I think uh, uh, you know if you eat a reasonable amount of Mashua and you you know you don't try to treat it as some kind of crazy superfood where you're drinking it three times a day as a shake or some kind of powder or other ridiculous stuff. You know if you if you grow, harvest, and cook your own mashua, I, I, I really doubt you're going to have any problems. And uh, that's the best I can do. Okay, two questions from Sam. Um, the first question is quite long, and I'm going to boil it down to uh, 
why can't you go to South America and bring back more varieties of presumably Andean tuber crops? Um, yeah, that's a complicated question. Um, it's, uh, there's, there are several levels of things that make this pretty much impossible. Uh, I guess the first level is our, our, uh, our phytosanitary requirements. So, uh, very few countries and certainly not the U S allow you to bring in seeds or other propagated plant materials, um, uh, unless they meet certain requirements and, uh, seeds generally have to meet the, the fewest requirements, uh, tubers, roots, cuttings, other such kinds of vegetative plant material have, have much more stringent requirements because they are often carrying diseases or potentially pests. So, uh, import is, uh, although not necessarily impossible, it, it's, it's difficult and it requires, uh, bringing the plant in through quarantine, um, but beyond that, there have to be um, there have to be some kind of phytosanitary standards identified for a crop before you can bring it in. And so that is uh, in in the case of many of these minor crops, the particularly the Andean crops, those standards don't exist yet. No one has decided which diseases are important and how you need to test for them. Uh, in order to bring them into the country. And because of that, there's really no good way to get them in. Um, and beyond that, you have the problem that uh, many of the Andean countries, well, actually, I, I don't know that many of the Andean countries, some of the Andean countries have laws that restrict the export of these crops um, for propagative use. Um, this is meant to defend against the, I hesitate to call it biopiracy, but that's often what's claimed. But it's, it's a defense against having other countries take these crops uh, that are native to the Andes and then um, obtain intellectual property restrictions on them and, and also to make profits on them that are not that are not shared with um with the countries to to which they're native so i think that's particularly true with peru that can be a problem um and then you've also got other layers of bureaucracy like the convention on biological diversity which has set forth a requirement that uh, that now uh, when when some of these native crops are transferred to other countries there there has to be a provision whereby if you make any money at them there has to be a way to share that money back with the uh the 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 the, the country from which it was exported and so after a while, you, this is this you're just wrapped in multiple layers of bureaucracy, and this starts to look um, 
starts to look pretty impossible. Um, I'm sure there are people who can do it, and, and I hope that they do. Um, I am not a plant explorer. I'm a, I'm a breeder. I, I don't have, uh, I really don't have the interest in going on collecting expeditions and then trying to tangle with government bureaucracy to bring things into the country. I would much rather just try to breed something newer and more suitable from the germplasm that I already have. Um, but I certainly hope that other people will take on that challenge because if, if anyone manages to bring in more varieties, I will most certainly buy them and try to use them in my work. Uh, and the second question, how do you know when to name a new strain? Uh, yeah, that's, a that's another fairly challenging question. Um, I don't really have a consistent process for that. And, and, and I suppose what we're really get, getting at here is when, when would I release a variety? When, um, when, when do I think something is good enough that, uh, that I want to share it with the world? And that answer is going to be different for every crop. And it, it depends a great deal on um, on the qualities of the varieties that already exist. So in general, I'm not um, I'm not working under the model that I think a lot of uh, corporate and academic plant breeding currently works under, where they where they work for like a decade and they produce one variety. And that one variety is the you know, it's the variety to rule them all. It, uh, it, it's, it's tops in all, um, you know, in all the traits that are important. Um, I most definitely do not work like that, but in many cases, I'm in, in fact, in almost all cases, I'm, I'm working with minor crops that have received relatively little attention. So what I'm looking for in general are noteworthy traits that that could be used to build you know to 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 build onto new varieties so uh, i'm not looking to get i'm not looking to combine every new trait that i find into one variety that has them all i'm happy if i if i produce a variety that meets the average performance for varieties that already exist and then has at least one new and interesting trait on top of that. So if I get a, if I, if I'm able to produce a new variety that, that, that is similar in yield and disease resistance and climate tolerance to varieties that I already have, but is in a, a, a new and interesting color, that's good enough for me. Um, if I, you know, if, if, if all else is the same, but, but it has 10% better yield, that's good enough for me. If I can get more than one novel trade into a variety, so much the better. But um, I often think of it, I, I tend to think of things in, uh, in, in software development metaphors because that's the world I came from before plant breeding. So in, 
in software development, you, you kind of have two major methodologies. The, the kind of older methodology is, is waterfall, where you gather all the customer requirements, and then you code, 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 code until you have a complete monolithic product that is ready to be released. So that is, that's how, that, that's how a lot of product development used to work, right? So that's, that's how you got Windows XP. They worked on Windows XP for years and years and years and years. One day, bam, they release Windows XP. And then it's going to be years before the next pro- product comes out, right? The, uh, the, the, the other approach is, is called Agile. And that is, that's a, that's a development methodology that's built on quick iteration. So you can see that in, it's kind of how Windows 10 works now, right? Um, you're not waiting years between releases anymore. They, they work on a, on a set of features. They, they get it out. They see how the customers like it. And then they quickly try to produce another release. And so, um, I, I often think that, that, that corporate and academic plant breeding is kind of doing the waterfall method. They work for a really long time on, to, to get the perfect variety. And I, and I think they do that because the intellectual property system incentivizes that kind of development, right? If you have to pay a lot of money to protect a variety then you don't want to release as many varieties. You want to get it just right, and you want to pay to get your monopoly protection and then to license that variety for someone to grow. Um, And there's not an obvious alternative if you want to do more of the agile development, quick iteration, but that's basically what I'm doing, right? I'm looking for one trait, one feature in a variety, and then I release it, and then I take that variety and I'm... I'm going to work on it some more, and I'm going to look for the next feature that I can kind of roll into that, and then bam, do it again. I want to release something every year. I don't want to wait 10 years to release something. Um, so it's a different, it's a different philosophy, and uh, and and I think kind of also an un, a relatively untested philosophy in the world of plant breeding. Um, and I could get into that a lot more, but I think I'll wait because uh, we're going to have an upcoming podcast with uh, some of the, uh, or probably more than one, with the with the folks in the open source seed initiative. And I think this will be a good topic to uh, to talk over with them. So I hope that answered your question. And uh, we've got two questions from Raj. Uh, uh, one of these is hard. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take I'm gonna take the easy question first. Um, why don't you sell a Chira? I have been hoping to see it in your catalog for a few years. So a Chira is another one of the Andean root and tuber crops, and it is mm, arguably the easiest to grow in North America. It uh, it's a it's a canna. Uh, much like uh, the ornamental cannas that you may be familiar with. And uh, it, it does reasonably well, actually, in, in continental temperatures, and it, it, uh, it can both uh, flower and seed and produce a good uh, rhizome crop <clears throat> in, a, in a relatively short growing season. 
So it, it, it may be the, the, the most adaptable of the Andean root crops um, to North America and, and Europe. Uh, so I guess it, it's probably surprising that I haven't uh, really offered it so far. And I, I haven't offered it really because I just haven't accomplished much with, with breeding it. Um, but that's probably going to change in the next year or two. Uh, I've got some, I've got some new varieties that I've been, that I've been testing and working with. It's not my favorite of the Andean crops. Uh, I find it kind of insipid. I mean, there are a lot of great things about it. Um, and it's, it's one of those, it's, it's, it's one of those root crops that, that, that is going to take on the flavor of anything that you cook it with. So, so while it doesn't have much flavor of its own, it, uh, it, it, it has a, you know, more or less potato like texture and, uh, it, I can really see how it could be, um, how it could be made much more appealing, um, in a, in a, in a recipe in which it, it has some, some more flavors to draw on. Um, there are other really great things about it, like the fact that it produces a, a pretty large amount of food that holds over in the ground really well. And so in that way, you can think of it a little bit like, uh, like Jerusalem artichoke, you know, a, a fairly low maintenance crop that produces large amounts of food and, uh, and it stores well in the ground. But uh, unlike the uh, notorious fartichoke, uh, Achira doesn't uh, doesn't really produce gas. It's very digestible. So there, there's a lot of great stuff about Achira. I just haven't really felt like I have, um, like I've had anything new to offer with it yet. But uh, but I think I'm going to get there, and uh, so uh, I, I expect to offer some Achira probably next year or the year after at the latest. Uh, the harder question, it seems like you only breed clones. Is that because it's easier? Um, that's a, that's a, that's a tricky question. Uh, so, so I, so to rephrase it slightly, um, I, I guess I'm not going to rephrase it. I'm I'm just going to give a little background here. So there there are you know I think we we actually talked about this earlier. There there are basically two kinds of approaches in 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 plant breeding. You can you can breed for a plant that is going to be going to grow true from seed and therefore you can plant the seeds and you're going to get a, a plant with the same phenotype each generation. Uh, the, the alternative is that you can breed for vegetative propagation. And then you don't need to go through a prolonged period of stabilization. You simply need to reproduce that plant from cuttings or tubers or other vegetative parts. And each one is going to really be an identical plant. So that's a way to immediately fix those traits and you don't have to um, you don't have to put in the same investment and time in getting to a true breeding line. And that's, and, and so that can be quite popular, right? A lot of people like to grow potatoes from seed. It's exciting. You get a lot of variation. And if you, 
if you find something that you really like, you can keep it. You just replant the tubers. So you could buy a packet of, t of, uh, of potato seed and plant them all. You could find a tuber in there that you think is great for you, and you could you could grow that plant indefinitely. And you've you've invested one year in the process. So, um, so yes, in some ways it's easier, but I think I I'm I'm not sure it's really easier in the long run if it is. Um, if you take into account everything that goes into to making it work. So there, there's additional effort up front and on the back end that, um, that you might not be calculating in. And, and so I, I mostly work with polyploids and therefore mostly with um, plants that are vegetatively propagated or cloned. And, uh, but I also do some, some breeding with plants that are propagated from seed. And I don't, uh, although the, the processes are, are different, I d don't necessarily see a huge, um, labor advantage in one or uh, over the other. I, I mean, certainly sometimes with, uh, when breeding for vegetative propagation, you can just get lucky and get exactly what you want, <laughs> you know without really putting in a lot of effort and you win and it's great but because plants that we propagate clonally tend to be polyploids there's often a lot more work that goes in up front into trying to understand the inheritance in those plants so that you can make the right kind of crosses to get what you want and uh you know, sometimes it takes years of growing different varieties to get an idea of, of what you might see in crosses. Uh, one way to get around that is to just grow huge numbers, right? So you kind of have a trade-off in, in scale versus uh, development time, right? I... I, I could grow maybe 10,000 varieties a year for 10 years or grow 100,000 varieties in one year and get to the same result, right? So I, I, I could, with sufficient scale, compress the time necessary to develop a new variety. But either way, you're, you're really doing the work because it's a lot of work to grow 100,000 varieties and it's, it's still a lot of work to grow 10,000 varieties a year for 10 years. Um, you can cut down the sheer numbers by investing some time in observing the results of crosses between different varieties, but that's also going to take years. So, um, if you discount all of the research and observation that, that goes into uh, the process of deciding which crosses to make, then it, then it looks a lot easier. And there's another problem with uh, with uh, vegetative propagation, which is that um, you know seed-grown plants in general accumulate fewer diseases than vegetatively propagated plants. And so the the maintenance of varieties that are vegetatively propagated is a is another 
um, major effort that's involved. And it's, and it's really one that, that, that never ends. You know, there are good techniques for keeping materials clean, but they're all labor intensive and um, you have to do them forever. So I don't know really if uh, breeding for sexual propagation or breeding for vegetative propagation is, is ultimately easier. It's, uh, but, but I think there's definitely the argument that, that with, with clonal propagation, if you get lucky, you, you really get lucky. You, you, you definitely get to bypass that, that those many years of, of stabilization that, uh, although they're not necessarily incredibly difficult or time consuming or space consuming still take years. So I hope that I hope that answered your question. Uh, let's see here. Mark asks, how can I get my potatoes to fruit? I'm in Northeast Texas and I grow like 20 varieties last year and most of them didn't even flower. Uh, so that's, this is a common problem with potatoes. Potatoes are uh, another crop from the Andes and they developed where temperatures are pretty cool during the summers and uh, particularly cool at night. And so that, uh, that has an impact on flowering. It's actually fairly impressive that we have developed potatoes that will grow well in, in Texas at all. Um, but you don't say what kind of potatoes you're growing. Um, if they're commercial varieties, then that's an impediment. Uh, many of the commercial varieties really, even under ideal circumstances, don't tend to flower very well. And even when they do have other problems like male infertility that make it, that make it difficult to get berries. So... If you're growing commercial varieties, you really might want to think about growing um, growing some varieties from seed, or perhaps you could uh, join the Kenosha Potato Project, which we talked about on, on the podcast recently. That's a good way to connect up with a, a lot of people who are growing potatoes in different climates, and some of them might have varieties that that uh, that that flower more reliably in in warm climates but the the other option would be to um just buy seed uh, you know we sell uh true potato seed and it's it's very diverse and it comes from um it, it you know it's collected from varieties that typically flower much better than commercial varieties and uh people generally report a lot better success in getting plants to flower when they've been grown from seed. And another option that you might consider is to give um, low dormancy diploid potatoes a try. Uh, the, the low dormancy diploids uh, were developed on the eastern slopes of the Andes where the temperature is a lot warmer and uh, 
they uh, they don't really have a winter. They don't experience frost, uh, and so they 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 worked on these potatoes to have no dormancy, so that they could be grown year round. They would just as soon as a as soon as a crop is finished, they plant a tuber again. It begins to grow within days or weeks, and you get another crop. So you can get several crops per year. But the but the key is that they tolerate heat a little better. And so they might be worth trying in your climate if you're not if you're not too particular. You know, the, these potatoes are going to be a lot different than the potatoes that you buy at the store. They're much smaller. Um, the yields are a little lower, but you can also space them closer. So you can generally get about the same total harvest in the same area of, of, of planting. Um, but it would be worth a shot. It would be something unusual to try. And, uh, you know, you might find that, uh, that in your warmer climate, they, uh, they, they outdo the commercial tetraploid potatoes. Okay. One last question. Um, from Carla, uh, how do you get seeds from the USDA? Like, like you mentioned in the first podcast. So in the first podcast, we talked to Nathan Kleinman with the experimental farm network. And, uh, uh, like I do, they, they make a lot of use of, uh, of the national plant germplasm system of the USDA, which collects and distributes um, seeds and propagation materials of crop plants to people who have a, uh, I'm trying to remember what their restrictions are, to people who have a, uh, who, who, who want to use it for breeding, education, or research. So those are their uh, requirements. Um, so how do you how do you get seeds from them? Well, first you have you're going to want to have a project that meets one of those objectives. So are you are you breeding? Are you are you using it for some educative educational purpose, or are you um, are you doing you know are you doing real research, which is going which is going to get published in some way, right? If you uh, if you search for uh, USDA NPGS uh, in Google. It will take you to the website. I'll also put a link up when I uh, when I post this podcast. So look for the links in the description. Um, it's uh, it's very straightforward though. If you if you have a legitimate use, all that you do is is uh, is search their database and uh, identify the the uh, accessions that you would like to grow and uh, it's a typical shopping cart kind of checkout and and uh, they will send you the the seeds or materials Uh, you may have to go through some justification to get there though so um, I guess one thing I should point out is that this is not I mean the the seeds are free but this is not <laughs> this is not a way to get free seeds, right? The, the 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 fact that they're free is the least important part. I, I I cringe every time I see someone post online, "Hey, did you know you can get free seeds from the government?" I mean, the the real 
purpose here is that these seeds are are used for uh, you know a, a legit a legitimate project and uh, um, just getting free seeds is not is not a legit a legitimate project um, and I'm not suggesting that uh, that's your motivation by the way I just I uh, just want to make it clear while we're discussing it so um, when you after you've selected your seeds uh, you'll be asked to write up a little explanation about what kind of project you're working on and that's where you explain that you're doing breeding with the crop and you might tell them a little bit about what your breeding goals are right uh, they're particularly interested in what kind of output is going to come from your project um, and how um, that output is going to be popularized because it's it's the output of your project that is is what they ultimately use to to justify their budget right so they want if you say you're doing research what they want to know is is the research going to be published where is it going to be published if you're doing breeding it's, are, are you going to release a variety if you're doing education are you going to be able to produce you know materials that you can that that uh, that, that you can share with them these are all tangible things that they can use to um, to, to at least maintain or expand their, their budget in the future. So that is more or less the game. Now, if you have, if you don't feel that you have a project that quite meets those goals, then you have other options. And that's a, one of the reasons why I, I, I really like the experimental farm network, right? Because that, that's, that's a way for them to kind of act as an intermediary. Um, they may be able to give you access to varieties from the USDA that, that, uh, that, that, that you can't otherwise obtain. Um, so that's, that's worth thinking about as well. I hope that answered your question. I think I'm, uh, I'm starting to wind down a little bit here, but that's, that's good because, uh, that's, uh, that's the end of our questions. So thanks everybody for the questions. And again, if you would like to, uh, submit a question for a future episode, just email it to podcast at cultivariable.com. And, uh, I will do another Q and a episode when probably when we have about this many questions again. Um, we've got some exciting podcasts coming up in the next couple of weeks. And uh, so stay tuned for those. And uh, I think we'll probably have our next episode up uh, probably by the 15th. So until then, happy growing.